0: As a starting point tonight, I want you to open your Bibles to Psalms 119. Strange that we just arrived at the 119th Psalm in our study over at the Villas for years now, I can safely say. We've been studying the Psalms there at the Villas on Thursday night. I told the folks the other evening I'm not quite sure what we're going to do with Psalms 119 because I've taught it as a series and it would take us several months just to go through this Psalm. It's absolutely amazing and every time I study it, it's new and fresh and I always get something out of it. Psalms 119 verse 151. Thou art near, O Lord. And all thy commandments are truth. Concerning thy testimonies, I have known of old that thou hast founded them forever. Verse 160, thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. I can remember as a young Christian, I'd only been saved, uh, I think, maybe just a few months at that time. And not having been raised in church, I... I didn't know very much about the Bible. I really didn't know anything about the Bible when I got saved. I knew I was a sinner. I believed that the Bible was God's Word, that Jesus was the Savior. I trusted Him to save me. I had no doubt in my mind whatsoever, but what He did, just that. So all of that was settled, but I had all of these questions. And I mean, I was like a little bird, you know, sitting in the nest just waiting for the mother bird to come back and... uh, deposit the worm. I, I was so hungry for the Word of God. And uh, back then, whenever churches had a missionary come through, uh, many times they stayed with one of the church families, but even if they did not stay there overnight, someone would always invite them over for, uh, for an afternoon meal or evening meal after the Sunday night service. It was On, on this particular occasion, we had a missionary there uh, at the church and saw one of our neighbors lived in the same trailer park that we lived in. In fact, the the, the fellow that was responsible for getting me going to church at that time uh, had invited them up to their house. And I was just, you know, we went home after church and they went up to their house and and uh, I, I just sat in there aggravated because, I, you know, I want to be around that missionary. I want to ask him questions and so forth. And and so anyway, I thought, I'm going to call up there. And so I called up there and, uh, and asked if I could speak with him just a minute. So they put him on the phone. And, and I never will forget, I asked him the question, now, now understand, I believed the Bible was the Word of God. I didn't, I, I didn't really know why. I Just something in me believed the Bible is God's Word. It's perfect, and that's what we ought to follow. But I asked the question, I said, you know, I believe the Bible, but how can we know the Bible is true? How, how can we know that this is really God's Word? How do we know that? I don't remember his exact words, but it was something like this. Well, it's so clear anybody ought to be able to tell the Bible is the Word of God. And that, he never elaborated. So I come to the conclusion that I wasn't anybody, I guess, because I did, you know, I believed it, but I had no idea why I believed it. Nobody had ever explained that to me. And you know, it's really amazing because a lot of times we assume that. You know, people, church-going people especially, that, that they know the answer to all of these questions. And they don't. When I pastored in Missouri, it was just outside of Springfield, Missouri, where Baptist Bible College is. And it so happened I bowled on the bowling team uh, the church bowling team, and we bowled uh, uh, against the professors in Baptist Bible College. So I got to know all of them on a first-name basis and had, you know, fellowship with them and, and just knew them rather well. And uh, we had several students that that uh, attended our church. And this is a college of, I think at that time, about 2,500 to 3,000 uh, students there. It's where Jerry Falwell graduated from. And those students on occasions would ask me to come up to the dorms in the evening because each evening the different dorms would all gather together and there they would uh, have Q&A sessions and a devotion and so forth. And I got the surprise of my life because I thought, you know, you know, here, here are these kids raised in church, gone off to Bible college. Uh, you know, they, they pretty well you know, know the answers to the major questions. And, and I was just awestruck at the ignorance of, you know, of, of, of those Bible college students. Now, I know they were there to learn, but I'm talking about just so, things that were so basic and so fundamental. Uh, years later, when I was teaching at Central Baptist College in Cincinnati for about three or four years there, and uh, boy, I'm telling you what, a lot of times you, know, you just stop and, and ask the students some questions, or do you have any questions? Boy, you better be ready when you ask that because you never know what in the world you're going to get. I'm taking a long time to say this. Don't assume that everybody understands why we believe the Bible is the Word of God. Now, the next several weeks we're going to be studying about God's Word. And I've got to hurry tonight, especially because this is the longest of all of the messages. In fact, I have never talked this particular message all in one session, and so we're going to have to rush through it the best that we can and still keep it on a level where even I want the children to understand this, and I don't, in any of our studies, I don't want it to get so technical that, you know, that we don't understand it. So, why I believe the Bible? How can we know this is God's Word? In John chapter number 8 and verse 32, Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And then the psalmist here in the verse I just read, verse 160, said, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Now, since all of that is true, then the most important decision that confronts man is that of accepting or rejecting the Bible as God's Word. Does everybody have one of the handout sheets that gives all of the reasons that I've mentioned eight of them there? And uh, I had Bev to type that up just so you can have those before you and you make notes on the back or whatever. But imagine where we would be without the Bible. To reject the Bible as God's Word would leave us in a world without any sure principles whatsoever. In other words, we wouldn't have any standard of right and wrong. So whenever kiddos, whenever your mom or dad said, well, you need to do this, and you said, why? And they said, because that's the right thing to do, you know. I guess you could say, well, prove it. How do you know that's the right thing to do? How do we know what's right and what's wrong? Oh, you said we live in a democracy. We're just going to vote on it. We'll just decide, you know, what rules are the right rules and so we'll follow those. Well, what if the society legalizes abortion? Uh huh. Now how are we going to decide what is right and wrong? Listen, just because you legalize a sin, it does not make that sin right. Right is right, wrong is wrong, regardless of what the majority says about it. So if the Bible is not the Word of God, then we don't have any sure standard, and everybody is free to just do as they please. That's what most people want to do. Remember back in the days of the Judges when every man did that which was right in his own sight. That's kind of where we're at today because the majority of people in America and Europe and many places of the world reject anything such as absolute truth. They just don't believe there is such a thing as absolute truth. And so whenever you reject absolute truth and you open up a Pandora's box, I mean, just anything goes. Now, Peter said, that we ought to be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh the reason of the hope that is within us. Now, I don't know about you, but all of my hopes are based on this book I hold in my hand. All of my hopes right here. This is what it's based on, folks. And the Bible tells me to give, be ready to give an answer for the reason of that hope. And as Christians, we need to be ready to answer those that are wondering about the hope that we have. So, let's think about why we believe the Bible is God's Word. Notice number one is the manner in which Christ spoke of it. Now, I could really just say I've only got one reason and just leave it at this tonight. I think I could do that and be justified. Over 2,500 times the Bible declares that it is the Word of God. Think about that. That's in the Old Testament and 500 times in the New Testament. It declares to be the Word of God. So there's no doubt about what the Bible claims to be. The question is, do we have any evidence that it's really true? The Bible says, you know, it is the Word of God. But is it really true? Well, I think we've got evidence. And Jesus Christ, the only perfect person who has ever lived, declared that the Scriptures are the authority, the final authority in all matters. He said over in John chapter 10 and verse number 35, the Scripture cannot be broken. Now notice on on your handout sheet, I think there are three areas there relating to this. Number one, the manner in which Christ spoke about the Old Testament. Do you remember the story of the Lord and here He is, He's been crucified and now He's on the road to Emmaus. The resurrection has taken place. He's on the road to Emmaus. And there are those travelers, two travelers, that engage him in conversation. And they are downcast, downtrodden. I mean, they, they don't understand why this terrible, terrible thing has happened. They do not understand that he has already conquered death, hell, and the grave. And Luke 24 and verse 27, it says, "...Beginning at Moses and all the prophets..." He expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning Himself. You see, Jesus is all through the Old Testament. Do you get that? Do you understand that? In other words, you don't just start studying the story of Jesus in the New Testament. He's still the same in the Old Testament, and all of the all of the the, the religious ceremonies and everything, the rituals and everything of that day were simply types and shadows of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So you could say the Old Testament is sort of like a, a picture book that you might use for children in order to illustrate truth. And so when Jesus does finally come into this world you'll notice that he acknowledges the Old Testament as the final authority. Now, you say, well, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, he took care of that also. In John chapter 14, verse number 25, Jesus said, These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you. Who's he talking to there? The what? The first church. That's a good answer. The first church, but the apostles specifically there. And he says here, notice, he will teach you. All things, now, now listen, and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Now that's not the only place that he refers to this. He does the same thing in chapter number 16. Now here's the, here's the, the, the point of it. Jesus is assuring them that look, you don't need to take notes and you don't have to have some kind of super duper photographic memory to memorize all of this. The Holy Spirit is going to remind you and bring all of these things to your remembrance. Now, as you know, the apostles, of course, wrote the New Testament. And so here you have these men writing the New Testament. These men that had been with Jesus, walked with Jesus, sat at His feet, constituted the very first church, because the church didn't start on the day of Pentecost. It started during the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, you see. And so here are these men and the Lord assuring them that He is going to continue His ministry through them. Remember, He said, And greater works than these shall ye do. Remember that? How in the world could we do anything greater than what Jesus did during His ministry? Well, we couldn't do anything greater in its essence, but we can do something greater in its continuance. Jesus was leaving this earth, going to the Father, But he says, you're going to do greater works than what I've done. In other words, his ministry, you might say, is cut short because now he goes back to heaven to assume the role as our mediator and our high priest there in heaven. But the work continues through the ministry of the Lord's church. And so the Holy Spirit enlightened the minds of these men and, 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 and gave to them the exact words that you find written in the New Testament. And we're going to talk more about that in another message. But then, throughout the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, on every occasion, Jesus honored the Scriptures. For example, if He wanted to illustrate truth, He referred back to the Scriptures. That's the only way to really do it. He didn't get them together and say, now you fellows have really raised a confusing issue here. I'm not sure. Let's just kind of, let's have a, you know, a rap session and we'll just get together and we'll talk about this and we'll get everybody's opinion on it and we'll settle on, you know, what we feel is the best course of action. He didn't do that. Why? Because the Bible has already been given, you see, and Jesus said, there's the answer right there. So if he wanted to illustrate truth, he turned to the Word of God. If he wanted to resist the temptations of Satan, what did he do? He turned to the Word of God. When it came to the questions by the Pharisees, and here they are, trying to trap him in some way, to discredit him, to hinder his ministry, and in each instance, his answer to them was not, well, I I am of the opinion, or I've heard, or I've been told. No, he just referred them back to the Scriptures. Now, since the testimony of a witness depends on the character of that witness, may I submit unto you that the testimony of Jesus Christ is true, and as far as I'm concerned, that, for me, is all the evidence I need. Just what Jesus has said about the Scripture. But there's more. The second bit of evidence that we need to look at is the miraculous preservation of God's Word. I cannot tell you how important it is that you understand this. We'll have an entire message on the preservation of the Word of God. Everything hinges on this one thing. Did God promise that He would preserve His Word? And did God keep His promise about preserving His Word? No other publication in the history of man has been so hated as the Bible. And throughout the centuries, men have fought against it and tried to destroy it and... and uh... And they failed on every occasion. The French infidel, and I've got to leave so much out of this. I, I was thinking about a, a poem. Last last Eve I paused beside a blacksmith door and heard the anvil ring and the vesture chime. I mean, you've heard that poem, right? And then it gets down to the end and it says, And yet though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed and the hammers are gone. All the critics are gone and yet... The hammer, God's word, the anvil still remains. The French infidel Voltaire, and no doubt in school you read something about Voltaire because he was determined that he's going to stamp out Christianity. I mean, he hated Christians, he despised the Bible, and he boasted that in less than a hundred years he said the Bible will be unknown, and later on the very house that he lived in, became a Bible dispository where they would store the Bibles and hand the Bibles out and so forth. I mean, it's kind of like God saying, in your face, buddy, you know, you're gone, my Word is still here. Thomas Paine said, Fifty years hence, this book will be obsolete and forgotten. But the very printing press that he used to publish his materials on was later used after his death To print Bibles. The critic was gone. The Word is still here. Lennon boasted, I expect to live long enough to attend the funeral of all religion. And he described, listen to this, he described the Bible as, quote, a collection of, of fantastic legends without any scientific proof. But when the same Soviet state publishing house years ago printed a book, a book of the Old Testament, all 100,000 copies were gone in a matter of minutes. Lenin dead and gone. The Bible still being published and people hungry for a copy of the Word of God. Robert Ingersoll determined that he was going to destroy the Bible. And he had a series of lectures called The Mistakes of Moses. Isn't it amazing how these people come along and supposedly find all the mistakes in the Bible? I've had people say that to me, well, yeah, I don't believe the Bible. There are too many mistakes in it. Now, in the first place, they probably never even really read the Bible, you know, or they, if they really studied the Bible, they'd realize there are no mistakes in the Bible. We get confused, but God's never confused. But anyway, after his death, a Bible student used the exact same desk that Ingersoll used, and he used that desk to write hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Bible study lessons. David Hume, who was an infidel philosopher, said, Methinks I see the twilight of Christianity, but that dude is dead and gone and Christians still live on. And here's what I'm trying to say. Time has proven it to be true, what Jesus said, that heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. And it's still here today. A fellow by the name of Fred John Maldu wrote, and I jotted this down. In fact, I have got stuff written in the flyleaf of my Bible and the margins of my Bible and things that I read many years ago and that that impressed me and. And this is one of those statements. He said, man has attacked it with fire, sword, pen, spade, test tube, and microscope. He has examined its claims minutely in the light of all positively ascertained facts of science, archaeology, history, morality, and every other branch of human learning. And instead of overthrowing the Bible, he has, he has revealed how firmly it is established in the councils of infinite wisdom. I submit to you this fact. "...that only truth can run the gauntlet of the fiercest hatred and antagonism and satanic spleen, weapons of intellect, government, and wealth, fires that have raged intensely for the past 19 centuries and more, uh, and come forth unscathed in the flame as did the Hebrew young men of old. And the reason for the miraculous escape is the same in both cases." The God of heaven, who is ever on the side of righteousness and truth, has simply protected them. Boy, I think you've got to say amen. That's right. God has preserved His Word down through all of these centuries. It is still here today. Number three, I believe the Bible is the Word of God because of the multitude of fulfilled prophecies. The Bible has pre-recorded the history of the Jews and of Christ Himself and of the church and actually the world because there are hundreds and hundreds of fulfilled prophecies all through the Word of God. In fact, during the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, over 300 prophecies were fulfilled. For example... The Bible told us He would be born of the seed of a woman. It says He would be of the seed of Abraham, of the lineage of David, and born in Bethlehem. And on and on and on and on you go with all of these different prophecies relating to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some years ago, a California mathematician by the name of Peter Stoner did some research, and he assigned all of his class members a particular Messianic prophecy. Young people, that simply means a prophecy concerning the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But he took only 48. Now remember, I said over 300 were fulfilled during his earthly ministry. But he just decided he's going to use 48 of these prophecies for the purpose of ascertaining the statistical possibility or chance that one of these things could have happened without, you know, any divine intervention whatsoever. Here And I think I put this on the notes there. Here was the result of that study. The probability was one chance out of a number that could be written as one followed by 181 zeros. Well, I'm just a dumb hillbilly from Missouri, and I I can't even comprehend that. So uh, Peter Stoner understood that that is totally beyond our comprehension to get a handle on a number like that. And so with all of his expertise, all of his skills, he decided to help us to be able to better understand the significance of that number. And here's what he said, to realize the significance of this tremendous number, visualize a huge ball composed of solidly packed electrons, and there are approximately two and a half million billion electrons in a line one inch long. Did you get that? You have to listen to all this carefully now. The largest thing we know about is our physical universe, some four billion light years in diameter. And a light year being the distance that light travels in a in a year moving at the speed of over one hundred and eighty six thousand miles per second. Consider a ball of electrons five hundred quadrillion times larger than the diameter of the universe. Is, is it stretching your mind yet? Mark one of the electrons and stir the entire mass until mixed thoroughly and a blind man would have about the same odds in finding the marked electron. That's about right. I, I mean, just, you, you just have to conclude there is no way that that the Bible could predict all of these things unless it is divinely inspired. Well, another fellow tried to make this easier for us to comprehend, and so according to the calculations of Lloyd Button, the academic dean of the Los Angeles Baptist College, he used 25 Old Testament prophecies about Christ that were fulfilled during the 24-hour period. And he said the chance that all of these would happen together simply by accident is one in 33 million Folks, that's not a coincidence. I mean, that's the Word of God, you see. Now, those are just the fulfilled prophecies. In addition to those explicit prophecies that we've been talking about, there are a multitude of different shadows and types that I mentioned earlier. You said, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean simply this. In the Levitical priesthood, and you remember back during the days of the tabernacle of the temple, all of those things in some way or another represented the person and work of Christ. And and let's just make it real simple. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And that little lamb that was slain way back there, hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ, back there in the Old Testament economy, that little lamb was a type They're a picture of Jesus Christ, who was the true Lamb of God. So in addition to all of these explicit prophecies that we've been talking about, you have all of these shadows and types, all of which were fulfilled just exactly as the Old Testament said that they would be. How in the world could anybody look at all of that evidence in addition to the testimony of Jesus Christ and say, well, the Bible's not the Word of God? I mean, it just doesn't even make sense to come to that kind of a conclusion. Number three. I think this is number four. The multitude of fulfilled prophecies. Did I miss one? I'm good. <laughs> the matter it contains. Now, a lot of books contain some truth, but the Bible contains nothing but truth. Henry Or Harry Reamer, who is the president of the Science Research Bureau, said, The Bible is not a book of science, but it is a scientific book. When the Bible does speak on a question of science, it speaks with the same absolute infallibility it possesses when it speaks on history or faith. I have searched the Bible from beginning to end for scientific error and have found none. Let's look at the various categories in regards to the matter that it contains. Number one, it's archaeologically correct. Over 5,000 places mentioned in the Bible has been definitely located. In every instance, the spade of the archaeologist has brought to light discoveries that substantiated the Bible record, the great Famous archaeologist Melvin Kyle said, There has never been found anything that discredits statements of fact in the Bible. Almost the entire list of names, places, and events of the Bible have been collaborated by the finding of archaeology. Sir William Ramsey said... The longer I study the New Testament, the more convinced I become of its absolute trustworthiness. Christianity is the religion of truth. It's founded on truth, absolute and perfect truth. I think he's right. Amen. I mean, every time you go out there, you know, and you uncover these things, and all of a sudden you discover what the Bible said was true. We'd have saved ourselves a lot of time and effort if we would have just accepted it to start with. Then it's astronomically correct. A Greek astronomer, he lived a few hundred years after the prophet Jeremiah. Now listen, this is a quote. I wonder how many sleepless nights this fellow spent. But here's what he said. There are only 1,056 stars in the heavens. I have counted them. And I'm sure he tried. But over the years, that number has been revised again and again and again and again. And now, the modern astronomers estimate that there are at least 100 billion stars. Well, man could have saved himself a lot of time by just accepting what the Bible says in Jeremiah 32, verse 22, the host of heaven cannot be numbered. You see, God told us that, and we here man thought he had it all figured out, and God said, you can't number, you can't count all of the stars of heaven. It's impossible. Not only that, astronomers have photographed millions of stars and found that there's no two exactly alike. Well, I don't know why they wasted all of that film, because the Bible tells us one star differeth from another. Why didn't we just listen to God? Modern astronomy declares that light is vocal. They say light vibrations creates a singing sound, but listen to what it says in Job thirty-eight seven: the morning stars sang together. So again, God alluded to this. Astronomers discovered a hole in the northern part of the universe where there are no stars. Job 26, 7 says he stretcheth out the north over the empty place. How could Job or anybody else in that day have known about that empty place up there? How could they know? They didn't have telescopes back then. How could they know? They knew because God knew. And he said there's an empty place. And then for centuries people ridiculed the fact, you know, about the, you know, the earth and said, well, the earth is flat and, and, the Bible says, you know, the circle of the earth. In other words, God told us it's round not flat. Just a few years ago, before I came here, we had a German fellow, fought in Hitler's army. And um, a good Christian man, and I'll tell you what, he was adamant about the fact that the earth is flat. And he was adamant about the fact that man never did get to the moon. I mean, he would argue with you all day long. And those Germans are stubborn people. And he would I rant and rave. And he said, the same people that tell you that are the same people that make those rabbits and other animals talk on Walt Disney and stuff. He said, it's all a bunch of hooey. It's all crazy. (laughs) Well, the earth's not flat because the Bible says it's the circle. Ancient people believed that the earth was held out there in space by a support of some kind. But the Bible says he hangeth the earth on nothing, Job 26.7. Early scientists thought that the moon was larger than the sun. But Genesis 1.6 says he made the greater light to rule by day and the lesser light to rule by night. And the same scientist said that the moon, you know, produced light. But the Bible says, Behold the moon, it shineth not. Here's another one. For centuries... People, you know, the, the same, the four corners of the earth, they ridicule that. Like the, see, the Bible is silly because there's not four corners to the earth. What in the world, uh, you know, the earth is round so they, there can't be four corners and all of a sudden whenever we got the space age satellites up there and what have you, they demonstrated that to be true because the satellites were pulled downward at the center of four different high points by unexpected high gravity. So in some way or another, there are four corners, just like the Bible said. Now, let's move on. Not only that, we're still talking about the content of the Bible. We said it was correct from the standpoint of archaeology, and we see here that its standpoint, uh, from the standpoint of astronomy it's correct. Then in the field of medicine it is correct. It was in 1628 that Dr. William Harvey discovered the circulation of blood. You know, now here's, here's, the, here's the strange thing. The Bible says the life of the flesh is in the blood. But a lot of people didn't realize that back then. During the days of George Washington, for example, they believed in what they called bloodletting. Somebody gets sick and they did this with them. Somebody got sick, they just, you know, they take some blood out. They, listen, they didn't need less blood. They probably needed more blood. But people didn't understand that. And not only that, when you study what Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, you'll see that there is a reference there to the human body. I believe that's what he's talking about there. And the cistern being broken at the fountain. In other words, it's talking about the circulation of blood and the heart and so on and so forth. And we could go on and on. We could talk, for example, about mental health. And listen to the experts today talk about mental health, for, you know, uh, and, and and the best thing we can do is to, is to not worry, be content in our occupation, rest, da-da-da. The list goes on and on. Listen, all of those things are mentioned here in the Bible. And God told us we ought to rest one day out of seven. I don't know why we didn't listen. Well, the list keeps going on and on. The Bible tells us that man was made out of the dust of the earth, and according to the chemists, the universe is composed of 118 elements and the dust, the dust is made up of 16 different elements, exactly the same elements that make up the human body. So the Bible must have been right when it said man was made from the dust of the earth, right? Amen. Not only that, it's meteorologically correct. Job said, he talked about there being weight for winds, well, before... All through the centuries, people talked about, you know, said air doesn't have any weight. But the Bible says air does have weight. Not only that, but the Bible tells us that all rivers run into the sea, and yet the sea is not full. Under the places from which the rivers come, hither they return again. He bindeth up the waters in his thick clouds. Now, this has to do here with water evaporation and the air currents and the mystery of rain and all of this. Hey, God had to handle on that already. And it was speaking about that. And here man couldn't understand that whatsoever. Now, next, number five, I think, the marvel of its unity. This is amazing. There are 66 books in the Bible. They're written by by about 40 authors over a period of 1,500 to 1,600 years. People of all different kinds of occupations. Now think about this, they did not collaborate one with another and say, well, you know, I've got to be sure I don't contradict what you've said, and so let's compare our notes. They just got together and, you know, or didn't get together, they just wrote as the Spirit of God revealed to them. And amazingly, whenever you come out with the final product right here, you have the Bible without any contradiction whatsoever. Charles Steinberg wrote these words. He said, To what shall we compare it? It is though one man entered a cathedral and struck a note on the great organ and left. Thirty-nine other men at different periods did the same. If we were to gather these notes together, are we to suppose that there is a means of preservation which shall make up the great work Handles Messiah? Should we say it just happened? No, we would be justified in believing that some great mind had supervised it. And he's right. Do you understand, kids, what he was saying? Let's just suppose that somebody came in here and hit one note over there on the pen, and they got it and left. A year later, somebody else come in, hit a note on the piano. They got up and left. And that went on and on and on. All these years passed. And then somebody puts all of those notes together in the order in which the notes had been hit, and you have something like uh, Handel's Messiah or some piece of music. I mean, listen, that it would it'd be a miracle if you would come up with Rockabye Baby doing that let alone handles Messiah. And that's what we're talking about when we think about the Word of God and the fact that its unity is absolutely amazing considering that all of these various men were used by God in order to record the Word of God. Now, here's another thing. The men who wrote it were impartial. The Bible is a book of adventure. It describes the battles, the fights, the victories of the heroes of faith. Now, I want to tell you something. Whenever you go to reading the Bible, you see the good and the bad and the ugly. You don't, it, you know, God doesn't sugarcoat any of it. I mean, it tells about the failures of David and Abraham and Noah and Moses and all of them. It's right there. Many years ago, they were going to do a portrait of of George Washington, and so he had, his face was scarred terribly from smallpox, and and so <clears throat> anyway, the 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 his the fellow that did the portrait of him uh, brushed it all out and took out all the spots and the blemishes. That's the difference between a picture and a portrait, I guess, huh? You go down and get a picture made and you got all of those moles and freckles and everything else. And, you know, some of these models that you see in the magazines, you think such hot stuff. I mean, if you saw them without their makeup and without it being airbrushed and all of that, you'd see they're just like everybody else, you know, not, not so hot. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have used that. <laughs> oh, well, you know what I mean, right? God doesn't airbrush anything, folks. Now, here's the point: these forty different authors that are writing the Word of God, and they're, they are speaking of their heroes. They're speaking, you know, of these people that that that, that have you know that have guided their nation. That have given their lives. And the last thing you'd want to do is what? Open up a can of worms that in some way would discredit them. But they go right ahead and tell you the truth. I I don't think that would happen were it not for the fact that the Bible is the Word of God and they were impartial and they were reporting the facts. And then another reason is the matchless character of those who accept it. I wish I had more and more time to talk about this because you just go through history and I've got name after name after name uh, with quotations concerning the Bible. Sir Isaac Newton, for example, said, "...if all of the great books of the world were given life..." And were brought together in convention. The moment the Bible entered, the other books would fall on their faces as the gods of Felicia fell when the ark of God was brought into their presence in the temple of Dagon. Now, He's simply saying it's superior to every other book. Gladstone said, "If I am asked to name the one comfort in sorrow, the safe rule of conduct, the true guide of life, I must point to what, in a word, of a popular hymn is called the old old story, told of an old old book, God's best and richest gift to mankind." Sir Walter Scott said when he was dying, "Give me the book." Thomas Carlyle said, "It's the finest bit of literature ever written." Daniel Webster said. It, only if we abide with the principles taught in the Bible will our country go on prospering. Andrew Jackson said the Bible is the rock upon which our republic rests. George Washington said it's impossible to rightly govern without God and the Bible. Ulysses S. Grant said, Hold fast to the Bible as to the sheet anchor to your liberties. Write its precepts upon your hearts and practice them in your lives. To the influence of this book. We are indebted for all of the progress made in true civilization, and to this we must look as our guide in the future. Theodore Roosevelt said, if a man is not familiar with the Bible, he has suffered a loss which he had better make all possible haste to correct. Woodrow Wilson said, The Bible is the revelation of the meaning of life, the nature of God, and the spiritual nature and needs of man. It is the only guide of life which leads the Spirit in the way of peace and salvation. And then he added, I would be afraid to go forward if I did not believe there lay at the foundation of all our schooling and all of our thoughts the incomparable and unimpeachable Word of God. Let me give you just a couple of more. Douglas MacArthur said, Believe me, sir, never a night goes by be I ever so tired, but I read the Word of God before I go to bed. Helen Keller said unless we form the habit of going to the Bible in bright moments as well as in trouble, we cannot fully respond to its consolations because we lack equilibrium between light and darkness. And listen, that list goes on and on and on. Here's what I'm trying to show you. You take all the people down through the years of history that have believed that the Bible is the Word of God and you line them up, you put them over here. And you'll find that that group of people, in comparison to those on the other side that do not believe the Bible is the Word of God, and there's absolutely no comparison. Those people that had the brightest minds, the most sincere hearts, the greatest morality and made the greatest contribution to society, here you have all of them on this side, and on the other side you have those that reject the Bible as the Word of God. Now, who in the world are you going to stand with? Now, I realize this is a minor bit of the factor. In, in other words, we could just throw this out all together and have enough evidence to believe the Bible is the Word of God. But I think that ought to carry some weight. If some of our deacons come up to me and said, Brother Stone, I, I need I need to tell you something, and I know this to be true, and I and I just feel like I've got to tell you. You know, the chances are good until they are proven wrong, I'm going to believe what they say because I know those men and and they they have credibility with me. I'm going to believe what they say unless I see otherwise. Whereas somebody just come up to me out here on the street, let's suppose it's one of these panhandlers down here got liquor on his breath. He comes stumbling up, up to me and says something. Well, I'm not going to believe what that guy says. I don't know that guy. And I can see in his lifestyle, he's not the kind of person you'd want to trust. Later on, we're going to talk about, and I hope you, I hope you'll be here for this, we're going to talk about some of the translators of some of the new, new uh, versions or editions of the Bible, so-called, and I'm going to show you from their own words, that what they did was an intentional attack on God's Word. Some of them did not even believe in the blood atonement and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they set out on a mission to discredit uh, and destroy the Texas Receptus upon what our Bible has found. Now, who in the world are you going to stand with? Number eight. And I'm going to wrap it up with this. And that is the mighty effect that it has upon people. I'll tell you, there's no book in all of, the, all of history that has shaped the lives of so many people as the Bible. Nothing else has inspired so many lives, transformed so many derelicts, comforted so many hearts as the Word of God. And every time I turn to the Bible, it lifts my soul up above all of the sordid things of this world. When I'm confused, it settles my mind. If I'm cold, it warms my heart. It just lifts me upward and onward toward the God of the Bible. You see, this book is unlike any other book in all of the world. I'm going to tell you why. Because this book is alive. Amen. This is a living book. It's alive. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 12 tells us that the Word of God is what? It's quick. That word quick means alive. It's alive. It's living. Why? Because it's God's Word and the Spirit of God, as it were, is in this book. When you open up the Bible and you begin to read, and so many times us preachers, we think, you know, we've got to make stuff happen and we get up and preach. Like I preached this morning, I want to see something happen, I've got to make it happen. Listen, this is where the power is here. It's not in the eloquence of the preacher. It's not in the illustrations and examples that he uses. This is where the power is here in this living Word. And I've just got to believe this book is different than any other book because anybody that will open the Bible with a sincere heart and dig into it, I'll guarantee you it will make a change in their life. Because God is in this book. And when you involve God in your life, something's going to happen. Something good is going to happen. Changes are going to take place. Don't you let anyone tell you the Bible is not the Word of God. The scientist come along and says, oh yeah, but you know there's so many mistakes there. No, there's not. That's a smoke screen, folks. That's all it is. The only thing they're doing when you go off to college or even in high school and you hear your teachers start talking about all of the mistakes in the Bible, all they're doing is trying to just frighten you away. Don't you be afraid to challenge your teachers. Be respectful. Understand, you be respectful. But don't you be afraid to challenge them because all the evidence is on your side. Aren't you glad tonight? that we don't have to guess about it. We've got it right. Right here in our hands, the very Word of God that will direct our steps and enlighten our mind and it thrills our heart. It changes our life. And how thankful we ought to be. Let's bow for prayer. Father, how we thank You tonight for having given us Your Word And Lord, what a frightening prospect it is to think about living in a world where we had no communication with You. Living in a world where we did not know right from wrong. And Lord, we see just a little bit of that in the world today because of those many people that reject the Bible as being Your Word. And now, They just assume that they are free to make their own rules and to live as they please. So help those of us who do believe and those of us who do indeed know that the Bible is your word. Help us, Lord, to be able to communicate that truth to those that we come in contact with as we leave here tonight, I pray that each one of us might be encouraged because when the Bible gives us those exceeding great and precious promises and we cling to them like a life preserver, help us to leave here tonight with the blessed assurance that they will never ever let us down. That we can depend upon Your Word knowing that You cannot lie that we can trust you completely. Help us to believe it with all of our heart. Help us to praise you for having shared with us. And help us to get its message out to a lost and dying world before it's too late. In Jesus' name, as we stand...